Greetings, pod listeners. Welcome to Wooden Teeth. My name is Jake Williams. I'm happy you're listening. Today on the pod, we have a gentleman named Jesse Uliberry, formerly of Colorado, currently of Pittsburgh, who is the executive director of the State Innovation Exchange, otherwise known as SIX. This is an organization that works to ensure that state legislators have the support they need to advance and defend progressive policies on issues like paid family leave, criminal justice reform, paid sick days, and more. He came by to talk to us about what they're up to, uh, especially this week. They have a National Week of Action from February 4th to 8th, in which they are promoting policies like paid family leave around the country. They're using the hashtag Fighting for Families if you want to check them out there. Also, their website is stateinnovation.org. Without further ado, let's check out my conversation with Jesse Uliberry. Jesse Uliberry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jake. So you are the executive director of the State Innovation Exchange, otherwise known as SIX. And uh, you all have been around for about four years now. And I remember when you first got started, you were kind of regarded as the counterbalance to ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which um, is a conservative organization. Is that the nature of your existence now? And how have you evolved as an organization? I think most folks remember us being started in contrast to ALEC. And I will say, thankfully, we've incredibly involved from from that beginning. Um, ALEC is an organization that has, since its inception, been dedicated to amassing wealth and benefit to the wealthy and well-connected and using their special interest connection and lobbyists to really create a disparate and unfair economy and democracy. And so we really should never have been modeled after them in the first place, um, because our goal at SIX is to share information with legislators, make sure that they can be talking across state line, connecting with progressive movement actors, but also making sure that they're building power to improve the lives of people across their state and not just amass power and interest for the wealthy and well-connected. Um, and so fundamentally, our mission is different, and that means our programming has changed. Uh, for us, it went from providing at the outset model policies and policy research and communications research. We still pres- provide all of those resources to legislators, but we've done much more to make sure that legislators can really think about their role in the broader progressive movement and think about how to, to organize within their own chamber and within their own body. And so that means thinking about the local ecosystem and Instead of us giving model policy, sharing a host of ideas that they can be working on with their progressive colleagues and also with their larger progressive movement and saying, how do we address a policy issue here and not use Connecticut's model or look at Massachusetts model? What needs to happen here and what are the unique factors here? And it means that our legislators are being much more aggressive uh, in passing policy and being successful in passing policy. And so six works at the state level. And before this, you were a state senator. And I think a lot of people who think about politics kind of passively probably have a vision of how things work that mirrors the federal government and uh, legislators with relatively sizable staffs. But it's not quite the same way 
at the state level. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between how state level uh, legislatures operate versus Congress? Yeah, I think most folks, when they envision an elected official, they think of a member of Congress or they think of a U.S. senator. And maybe it's because they've watched The West Wing or Veep or some other show that has an an entire office full of staffers. And that's by and large true. Um, Members of Congress and U.S. senators will have over 30 staff members working in district and working in Washington, D.C. that do policy research, that do scheduling. They'll have a chief of staff. And that couldn't be further from the truth for state legislators. Many state legislators, actually the majority of state legislators, are in part-time positions. Some go unpaid themselves and will not receive pay. Some will receive a very small stipend or per diem. And others will see receive part-time pay while they serve. And at the same time, very rarely do they have a full-throated uh, approach to staff. I think California is probably the only state that really has the, the comparable staffing scale of a member of Congress. But that's because they have districts that are larger than congressional districts. Uh, but in in every other state, you have state legislators who are maybe working with a part-time person or they have an intern to support them. Um, they're not working with the chief of staff. They don't have uh, a dozen policy researchers at their disposal. And so what it means for state legislators is that they have to find resource and support elsewhere. As six, the policy research and strategy organization to help progressive state legislators, we can provide them key resources like here's a way to set up your office using volunteers just in the way that you did in your campaign. Here's the core functions of constituent management and how you can make sure you're responding constituents as they reach out to you. And then at the same time, we're helping them really think about advancing a bold progressive vision in their legislative bodies. And so it is a a very different reality in, in state legislatures, but it presents an opportunity, especially for people who are interested in making immediate change to have an influence um, by getting involved with their their state legislators and helping them to to move progressive public policy. What were you surprised about the most when you first got to the state legislature as a state senator um, in terms of the way interest groups engaged you to try to influence you to do whatever they wanted you to do on legislature on legislation, excuse me, that came before you? Before joining the Colorado State Senate. I had been an organizer for about 10 years working on public policy measures and ballot measures, had helped to raise the minimum wage, had helped to defeat the anti-affirmative action ballot measure that had been on the ballot. And so had a pretty deep understanding of progressive advocacy and organizations. And when I showed up on my first day in the legislature was leadership elections, I didn't see any of that community involved. And I honestly didn't see many of those folks involved until the earliest parts of our legislative session when we convened and legislation had already been drafted. So I think that was one of the lessons, seeing the progressive movement particularly wait until the process started to begin when so many other groups had started before that. When I was a state senator, I was one of 35 and there were 65 House members. So the entire legislature was 100 people. At the same time, there were over 700 registered lobbyists in the state of Colorado. So every single day that I was in the Capitol, I was outnumbered seven to one by registered lobbyists. Some of those folks lobby for groups like the ACLU or Planned Parenthood, but by and large, these are folks who represent corporate interests and are advancing many other priorities at the same time. They'll represent a hospital and then they'll represent an oil and gas firm. And so it makes it very complicated. I think their eternal presence at the legislature showed me that some of the tactics that the progressive movement had been using were insufficient. 
For example, when I was an advocate before, I really was excited by lobby days. We'd have hundreds of members show up on one day of the legislature, meet with all of their representatives on one day and think that that would change the, the system. When I was there every single day, seeing these lobbyists every single day, um, I realized that that kind of tactic only goes so far. It can help provide a narrative change. It can uh, allow people exposure to the legislative process. But continual engagement by our movement is what's necessary to change power dynamics within it. So I was really excited by a, uh, an innovation that I saw spearheaded by groups like Color, the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, NARAL, Planned Parenthood, and 9to5. They started hosting a Women's Wednesday. And on Wednesday, these women would wear red. They would show up to the Capitol. It was the same concept about grassroots lobbying, but they actually were exposed every single week. And they started to change the relationships between their organizations and legislators. And that's when we started to see the shift in some of the issues that became important. This was when I was serving in the minority in the Senate. And um, it was by and large part due to their organizing and efforts that we were able to pass the Pregnancy Accommodations Act because they were pushing Republican legislators to support the bill. They got a Republican sponsor, and it changed the dynamic for us to see that kind of really significant policy change. So what type of progress have you been able to make uh, at the state level in your, I guess it's only been four years of existence? Quite a bit. And so when people think about what's possible in state-level politics, usually it's about figuring out what are the big ideas people want to advance And then often people get stuck on the how. I think we at SIX are incredibly proud that we've been able to provide dozens of legislators um, resources across the country, uh, usually on a weekly basis when they're reaching to us and they say, I want to work on advancing climate change uh, and making sure that, you know, my community is healthy and protected. What have other states done? This gets to the base of what we call the innovation exchange. We're able to show in real time what other legislators have introduced. We track bills on a daily basis and can say, here's what Hawaii is considering. This is what Ohio is looking at. Here's what's happening in Colorado. And then we're able to share that information with legislators and they can pick and choose what kinds of policies they're wanting to move forward. I would say some of our business, biggest successes are coordinating legislators across state lines to help elevate issues that are coming up all the time in their communities. By and large, it's increasing wages for people and making sure that they can afford to, to feed their family, to have a roof over their head and live off of one income, you know, rather than working two or three or four jobs. Um, that's something that comes up frequently. Access to healthcare and Medicaid expansion, especially in states that don't have progressive majorities, looking at what other uh, options are there for, for public policy. And by exchanging information about talking about best practices and sharing policy and communications research, legislators have been incredibly adept at turning those ideas into public policy across the country. Because we are not like ALEC, we don't pass or promote model policy. We try and give legislators tools to organize in their communities and to work within their local ecosystems with the advocates on the ground. Uh, We're not just saying, here's one policy, pass it. We are working to get as many good progressive public policies um, on on the books as possible. But do you set priorities? Do you like make, even though you don't export model policy, how do you make decisions about uh, issues you work on or priorities that you'll set? We have a broad values guidance for us. It is about making sure that our democracy is fair and accessible to all, that we have an economy that works for everyone, that we have a planet that continues to to exist and thrive. Um, And so we use our values to guide our decision making about where we put our resources. 
by and large, where we spend our time um, are the areas where there is the most need, and that comes from the legislators. And so um, those big buckets are around democracy and making sure that we're taking down barriers to participation. It's also around uh, economic justice and making sure that everyone can participate fully and benefit from our economy. And it's around reproductive health rights and freedom, making sure that um, the, the human agency of your body is yours and not the, the government. Um, and then we're, we're also spending quite a bit of time on uh, climate justice, racial justice, immigrant rights, the issues that come up that really do deserve um, important detail and, and consideration and support from a broad progressive movement to help pass and craft really good policy. So you all have been able to make some pretty good progress in these last four years on promoting progressive policies, but it still seems like progressives have a way to go in terms of winning state-level elections. I'm going to lay some numbers on you. Here it goes. So in 2018, Democrats went from 32 to 37 state chambers, while Republicans decreased from 67 to 61. Put another way, Democrats made gains, but Republicans still lead um, in terms of number of chambers, 61 to 37. Democratic governors also made gains in 2018, but still trail Republican governors overall by 27 to 23. Uh, there are now 14 Democratic trifectas. These are situations in which one party controls both chambers of legislature as well as the governor's office. So again, that's 14 Democratic trifectas, 23 Republican trifectas and 13 divided. This is happening, Republicans consistently beating Democrats overall, despite the fact that Democrats outnumber Republicans in voter registration and the Democratic candidate for president has won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. Why is it shaking out this way at the state level? First, I want to just say a note about the State Innovation Exchange 6 and our work in support of progressive legislators. First, we support progressive legislators all across the country and doesn't matter what letter you have behind your name, it really is about the values you stand for and the way that you fight for those values in office. And so we are a nonpartisan organization. I will say for us, that means um, sometimes we have progressives who are working in um, a trifecta democratic state and are pushing and sometimes not able to get across the finish line on, on policies they care about that are important to people. Um, and in other places, we're working with a progressive in a really deeply red state, and they're able to pass uh, good progressive public policy. Um, and so I think, although we often think in terms of partisan makeup and what's possible, um, we we suspend that belief and say, no, actually, if your job is to be an organizer in elected office and it's to build power for the communities you represent, then whether or not you're in a majority doesn't really matter. What you have to do is actually find every single opportunity and meet that opportunity with resource and strategy so you can build. A great example of that is a legislator in North Dakota who was in a very deep minority, um, saw that there was gonna be this effort to allow corporate farms to come in to the state and decimate their, their environment, to decimate their economy, but it was being pushed by these lobbyists. And she knew she didn't have enough votes to defeat the, the bill itself, but she tacked on a referendum amendment and said, our voters are never gonna approve this. By and large, these are family farms in North Dakota. And she knew that all of the other legislators couldn't vote against the referendum amendment. I would say that, you know, they don't trust the voters to approve this measure. 
Well, she got it sent to the ballot and by and large voters rejected that. And this was just a couple of years ago. Um, and so we never cede power anywhere. I think that's an important note. But to your larger question about the partisan makeup and the, the control of Republicans versus Democrats in our state, this is one of the reasons why we really focus on, on fighting for an accessible democracy. What happened in 2010 was an incredible power grab by the most extreme members of the Republican Party, the most conservative. And those folks um, were able to control the map making process. For people who haven't paid close attention to how political districts are drawn, every 10 years we hold a census. The United States government holds a census and counts every single person. Then they take that number of people and they figure out the size of congressional districts and they break up the congressional districts and allocate by state. But then by and large, it's state legislative bodies who will draw the maps for members of Congress and for the state legislature. There are a few states, and thankfully many more, that passed referendum this last year that do independent district uh, districting. And so that means citizens draw the maps. It's not controlled by a political party, but it's controlled by individual members of the community. What happened in 2010, however, is that when the Tea Party wave was elected in, they controlled state legislative bodies, and then they guaranteed themselves power. It's why you see uh, cases coming before the Supreme Court in North Carolina, in Wisconsin, and other places where um, there is no other way to understand how those lines were drawn except to guarantee a political outcome for the Republican Party. And that's what happened. Uh, lines were drawn for 10 years, and in many states, Wisconsin is a great example, um, where even with very high voter participation in the 2018 midterms, um, by hundreds of thousands of Democratic voters over Republican voters, uh, there was no net change in the, the type of representation in the state legislature. And it was because the, draw, the, the maps were drawn with such a disadvantage uh, for Democrats. So this go, we want people to be ready for census redistricting and reapportionment and, and everything that entails. And so we're, we just launched a democracy program at six to help people eliminate the barriers to participation in the census. That means fighting back against things like the citizenship question that can uh, actually depress turnout in, in the census. It's also making sure that legislators understand their role in helping their communities to be counted and how they can supplement the data um, in the census process so there is a fair and accurate count that then informs the drawing of maps. We're making sure that those legislators um, that are democracy champions are ready to meet uh, the challenge of a census in 2020 and then the ensuing map making. Um, and that means increasing transparency, it's about reducing influence in that and making sure that people have uh, an ability to be represented. Do you ever regard state-level policy um, as a realm in which you can do good for not just the people within that jurisdiction, but also as a place for export uh, of policy from the state level to the federal level? And if so, what are some examples of that? Yeah. At the state level, we're able to pass policy that almost immediately makes an impact on people's lives. And the process is relatively quick compared to Congress. Uh, Congress moves incredibly slow. They have um, a lot of competing interests all across the country. And this is why you see deals that get, you know, take forever to, to complete, have a million amendments that don't really deal with the subject of the bill. However, in states, we're seeing people who will introduce and pass legislation that automatically has an impact. An example is in Maine, where for many years, um, the, the governor there had tried to block um, expanding Medicaid. And the new uh, 
progressives that were elected in both into the governorship and also into the state legislature were able to pass Medicaid expansion, allowing hundreds of thousands of Mainers to get access to, to medical care. Those are the kinds of things that are incredibly exciting to do. And as you said, there's an ability to set a national conversation about what's possible and what people are hungry for. So you will see oftentimes people who are innovating in cities, talking about good ideas that also then get lifted up to the state level. And then those become the basis for our federal policy discussion. A great example of that is the Fight for 15, which started in Seattle. An individual activist in Seattle said, you know, minimum wage hasn't kept pace. What we need is a significant infusal of uh, infusion of, of cash to people's pockets because so many people are struggling in our community. That turned into larger efforts across the country to increase the minimum wage and really set a standard of 15. Uh, and now you have many states who are pushing um, the fight for 15 and are looking at one fair wage, which means separating or ending the separation between tipped workers and non-tipped workers and saying, in fact, we need to, to end the disparity between uh, who we treat as a minimum wage worker. Uh, and now states are pushing that, and, and we're seeing significant movement. We just saw movement in New Jersey. There's efforts here happening in Pennsylvania. Um, and so as we see that, then it sets the context for the federal fights. Um, another example is around paid family medical leave, where people at the state level are saying, look, California has done this. New Jersey has done this. Connecticut has done this. We have an ability to actually make sure that when people get sick or are caring for their, for their family members who are sick, they shouldn't have to go bankrupt. Um, there's a different way that we can do this. And that set the conversation for an entire country to say paid family medical leave should be the standard. And the government is actually talking about that now. Um, but whether or not they'll do it is, is a different thing. We are now approaching the anniversary of the passage of the Family Medical Leave Act, which guaranteed unpaid leave. Um, and that's actually this week. That's the anniversary of this week. Um, I think we're, we're 20 some years in. Uh, and people aren't able to achieve what they need to with that kind of unpaid leave. And so that's the way that we see some of these ideas come up from the state level to the federal level. Speaking of this week, uh, this is your national week of action. Uh, and this podcast is posting right smack dab in the middle of it. Uh, so what is this, uh, what's this week all about for you guys? This week is our Fighting for Families week, um, hashtag Fighting for Families. And so you can follow us along on social media and see all of the amazing work of progressive state legislators who are fighting for families in their communities. It will be progressive state legislators who are introducing legislation to make education more affordable, to make sure that we are thinking about how to pay our public school teachers, uh, and also increasing wages and making sure that they have access to paid family uh, and medical leave. And so what that will mean is that um, all across the country, legislators will be participating in their own actions having organized with their local communities, press conferences or rallies or bill introductions where they are lifting up the need for us to fight for families every single day in our state legislative bodies. I'll be in Colorado um, joining some of my former colleagues who are uh, likely this year to pass a paid family medical leave bill. It was one of the first bills I introduced when I joined the Senate um, back in 2013, and it may become a reality this year. So it's an incredibly exciting thing to see in every corner of the country, legislators stand up and say, we need to be fighting for families and present a bold vision of what is needed. I think that's what people are searching for at the federal level and at the state level is leadership that inspires, that actually talks about how to improve people's lives. And it is what is possible when we have um, people committed to a better vision of this country. Let's talk a little bit more about paid family leave. Why is paid family leave important? And 
why is it necessary from a, a policy standpoint to do at the state level, given that during the Clinton administration, we passed the Family and Medical Leave Act? The Family and Medical Leave Act guarantees employees who work at an employer with more than 50 employees to take off unpaid time to deal with their own health issue, um, a health issue of their, their family member. And so if someone gets cancer, if someone gets pregnant, if someone is welcoming a child that they have adopted, you can take unpaid leave. The idea there is that you should be able to, to take the unpaid leave and come back. But the reality is so many people are living paycheck to paycheck, or when you're dealing with a medical emergency or medical issue, you don't have a whole lot of extra cash sitting around to take months off of unpaid leave. And so what we see is many individuals uh, who will take the leave um, and then suffer a financial hardship or will refuse to take the leave and have their health deteriorate. And in this kind of country where we have so much wealth and so much ability to care for ourselves and our families and our neighbors, no one should be forced with that untenable decision. Should I have my home foreclosed upon or go get chemo? Um, That really should never be the kind of decision a, a person is confronted with. However, that is uh, the reality daily. A paid family medical leave system, um, the policies may look different in states, but the idea is that similar to unemployment insurance or other collective programs that allow people when they experience a hardship to have some support, uh, by and large, these are structured as employee contributions, sometimes with an employer match or contribution that goes into a big pool, a big insurance pool. And then when people need to leave, they can draw down a percentage of their pay. The, the kind of insurance programs that some businesses may opt into can be incredibly cost prohibitive for families, so they won't choose um, the disability insurance that may be possible. Oftentimes, the uh, kinds of uh, conditions that are covered in disability insurance aren't the same that are covered in family medical leave insurance. An example here is that, um, by and large, employees who have disability insurance um, cannot take the disability pay if they are pregnant. Uh, unless they are designated to then have a disability at some point with their pregnancy. For example, if they are mandated to, to bed leave, they're not allowed to necessarily take the full amount of, of pay when they've just completed childbirth and are now raising an, a new human into their, into their family. Um, and so those are the challenges where the current market products don't meet the need of individuals um, or their families. And by doing this as a state-level program, people in small businesses and large businesses can take care of it. And that's the other really important thing to note here. By and large, businesses try and do their best here, but they are struggling with um, what's possible. Small family-run stores often will allow their family members to take off time to, to have a new kid, to deal with a health issue, and they're struggling through. This creates a way to support small businesses and individuals because there's a way to replace that pay. And at the same time, because the, the company itself isn't paying directly for that person to be gone, they'll have some savings that can hire temporary support. It's a way that we really think could build up our economy and allow people to take the time they need to care for themselves and their families. So I was watching the Super Bowl this past weekend and the commercials that aired, I just noticed were overall decidedly serious. You know, not as many funny commercials as I remember seeing uh, during Super Bowl broadcast. And for me, at least, it was just one more reminder that we're in this very tense era in America and especially in American politics. What gives you hope these days, either, you know, professionally or personally? Is there a, is there a source that you can point to that 
inspires you or makes you convinced that better days are ahead? Oh yeah. <laughs> I, uh, maybe I'll start just at home. What gives me hope? And then we'll move outward from there. I have an eight year old kiddo who is incredibly bright. She is um, precocious and observant and wonderful. And, um, the things that come out of her mouth, just about the way that she cares for other people and the way that her, her classmates talk about the world at the age of eight makes me incredibly inspired. The way she talks about climate change and wanting to protect our community and be a veterinarian, like those kinds of things show me that it is in, you know, just deeply embedded in the human spirit to believe in what's possible and then to, to dream about it and then turn it into reality. Um, that's part of what gives me hope every single day. I get to see her and kiss her on her forehead when she wakes up in the morning. Um, but then I go out from there outside of my door to my community and I see folks who are deeply committed to improving our community by participating in the PTA or doing a trash pickup or who are protesting police violence. The fact that people deeply care are organizing and pushing back. Those are the kinds of things that say to me, um, change is possible and hope is always there that things can and should be better. And then from there, I see some of these folks who've been leading in their communities take the, the step into public leadership. I see people like Julie Gonzalez, a fierce immigrant rights advocate who was elected to the state Senate in Colorado. My friend Faith Winter, who was in the House when we were pushing paid family medical leave, now being in the state Senate and championing paid family medical leave. Those are the kinds of folks who I look at. And for example, I'll be in, in Denver this week and buying uh, Girl Scout cookies from, from Faith um, uh, because she's a mom. She's a person who brings her full self and her identity into this work and knows what policies should be passed because of her own lived experiences. It's those kinds of folks that I turn to and, and just um, have hope for the future. I also look over to, to Arizona and people like Representative Athena Salman, who is pushing back against mass incarceration, is looking at making education more affordable. I'll jump down to Georgia and see people like Sam Park, who's continuing to fight back against LGBT inequality and making significant progress and stopping the introduction of RIFRA bills, uh, Religious Freedom Exemption Acts uh, in, in a place like Georgia. Uh, and I see people like Stacey Abrams, who is going to be delivering the State of the Union response on Tuesday, who um, faced unprecedented voter disenfranchisement in, in her district. Uh, and these people who don't stop fighting and will never stop fighting. That gives me hope every single day. Jesse Uliberry, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jake. Anytime. Well, I hope you liked that. I did. Uh, I'm headed to D.C. tomorrow to do a couple things, including uh, a new interview for the podcast. And if you are into public health, I think you're going to like this next one. That's the only clue I'll give you for now. Until then, take care, and I'll see you on the next episode of Wooden Teeth. Wooden Teeth.